0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I want to jump into John chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through uh, 42. Uh, and I just want to pause quick and ask a blessing over God's word as we go there. And um, uh, so let's do that. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, God, as we open your word, as we look at John chapter four, Lord, we just ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would remove anything inside of me that is impure or wrong or sinful. Lord, that you would cover me once again in the blood of your son, Jesus. God, that you would purify my motives, the intentions of my heart, the thoughts of my mind and the words of my mouth, God, and that you would help me to preach your word faithfully and that you would help uh, me to uh, uh, bring honor to you and to do good to your people and anybody who's watching this video. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just come and minister to us through the power of your spirit, that you would come and bind up the brokenhearted, that you would heal the wounded, that you would heal the sick, that you would call to repentance those who are living in rebellion. God, that you would do that and more that you would give brand new hearts to those who have currently have hard hearts. Uh, maybe draw people to you who do not yet know you and have not yet believed and trusted in you. God, I pray you would do all that and more through our time in the word. I trust you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, John chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Uh, now, the, I want to give a, a little bit of introduction before we get into the text. Um, we're going to be in a significant chunk of text. Um, just going to lay some foundation, some background for you. Uh, the Gospel of John uh, has historically been a book that many Christians turn to for strength and, and encouragement and, and assurance um, during difficult seasons, okay? Most, most scholars authors, commentators, they agree that the main thrust of uh, John's gospel, the main reason that John wrote this gospel is so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, that you and I might have life in his name, life eternal. Famous passage from John is John 3.16, right? Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son Uh, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. The other passage I referenced a minute ago um, is from John 20, 31. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So so, uh, that's why John is writing this gospel. To that end, uh, John as an author, um, he lays out this really powerful case for the historical, a supernatural, a reliability of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish and what he actually did accomplish and, and how his life, his His death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, his promise to return uh, in glory to take us to heaven with him. Um, that all of these things, along with why we should believe in Jesus as the hope for eternal life. All those things point to that one central truth that we can believe, we can trust in Jesus uh, for eternal hope, not just momentary hope, eternal hope. So uh, make make no mistake, Uh, oftentimes people will say that the authors of the Bible were very illiterate men. Um, John, John is not that. Um, And and I don't believe any of the gospel writers were that. John is not some uneducated fool who can barely read or barely write. John is a very powerful communicator. Read the words of John's gospel and I think you'll see this. He's a very powerful communicator. He uses very convincing, very compelling force of uh, of well-written arguments. And he does that in story form all throughout his gospel. He does this to persuade you and I, to compel you and I to believe in Jesus for salvation. So as you read the, the entire gospel, I want to take a panoramic view for a moment before we land back at the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Um, as you take this panoramic view, I mean, you see all these themes kind of weaving themselves in and out all the way through John's gospel. You see the themes of God's love, its never-ending love. Uh, You see the themes of the depravity, the depth of human sin, our brokenness, our failures, our mistakes. Um, You see uh, all throughout his gospel the supernatural power of God in bringing people to himself and healing people. And connected um, right at the center of all of that is this reoccurring theme of belief so that you may believe Look at sin, look at God's love, look at God's power in the midst of that, believe that he sent his one and only son to die for you and for me and to beat Satan's sin and the grave. And all throughout this gospel, there's really one central question that I love to key in on. And I hope that you might write this down and maybe give this some thought this week. Okay, I'm a a thinker, and I think many of you might be as well. But this is a really good question to ask. And because I think it kind of surfaces all throughout the gospel. Is something true? Because you believe it, or do you believe something because it's actually true? Let me ask that question again. Is something true just because you believe it is? Or do you believe something because it's actually true? Now, John actually gets after kind of answering this question by organizing his narrative around eight different miraculous signs, anchor points all throughout his gospel. He calls them signs to help us to believe. So we've kind of walked through a series where we've highlighted those anchor points, all of those miracles. John, John chapters 2 and 4, what do we see? We saw Jesus turning water into wine. Then he heals the wealthy man's son. Chapters 5 and 6, Jesus does what? He he heals a man who's been lame for 38 years. And then what does he do? He feeds 5,000 people with just a couple loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Then in chapter 6 and chapter 9, Jesus walks on water, makes, makes the lake a highway for him to walk on. I think it's crazy. Um, calms the storm that the disciples find themselves in. Then he gives sight to a man who had been born blind. And then in chapters 11 and 20, what does Jesus do? He raises Lazarus, his friend, back from the dead after being in the tomb for a couple of days. And then he himself, Jesus himself in chapter 20, he is raised from the dead as well after dying that horrific death on the cross. And what happens there? He's proving that he alone is the resurrection and the life. He alone holds the power over Satan who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He holds the power over Satan, who is a liar, a father of all lies. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he holds the power over Satan. Who comes to tempt you and to destroy you. He holds the power over sin. Sin which dwells up from within. Sin that constantly seems like it's got us in prison and consistently brings us back to unhealthy, sinful, sick living that is that is. Uh, an abomination uh, in the eyes of God, right? It hurts God's heart when we act in ways that he didn't design us to act in. He holds the power not only over Satan and sin, but he also holds the power over death. Death comes for all of us at some point in time. And this is a, a topic that many of us are, are probably more peculiarly attuned to in this season because everything that we see coming across our news feeds right now is about the fear of death people are dying. Not that people don't die every day and haven't died every day for a long time, but in this season, it's, it's, it's scary. It's fearful. We're thinking about death and what life means more than ever right now. And it's good to hear this message that Jesus is powerful over Satan, sin, and death. The death that we die here on this earth doesn't have to be the last word. There is eternity. And the way that we live here and, and the way that we respond to Jesus here dictates what happens for all of eternity. So in every one of these narrative anchors, these signs throughout John's gospel, he's seeking to convince us uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, And and all throughout his gospel, some people believe this, right? His disciples uh, believe this. Other people don't believe this. Typically, the people that you would have thought would have believed, they're the ones who don't believe. That's, That's a fascinating If you're a Christian and you're listening to this today, this is a warning for us, just like a sign on the road that says, hey, dangerous, curve ahead. Um, This is a warning for us as we read John's gospel. Because the people that actually don't believe, that probably, for us, we think, man, they should have. It was the religious people, the religious leaders all throughout John's gospel. They were the ones who turned on Jesus and did not believe. So question remains. It remained for them. It remains for us. Is something true merely because you believe it's true or do you believe something because it's actually true? (coughs) John, John wants us to believe in Jesus. Why? Because he is the true Messiah. So that's context. Okay. With all that context, all those thoughts kind of rolling through your mind, want us to take a look at, again, my kind of my favorite passage in almost all of Scripture, almost all of Scripture, um, but definitely in all of John, uh, my favorite passage. In John chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1. It's my favorite story because the story of the woman at the well, it's actually the reason that we named our church the well. So nearly eight years ago, I stood in this same place in front of, a TV that I think was just like the one behind me at this very same table. Um, And I preached this passage, some of you uh, that were with us then in our living room as we began to plant. There was like six of us when we started um, and then we just started to grow. some of you would remember that, come back to this passage many times, but we named our church The Well because of this passage. Felt a strong calling um, for our church to kind of embody all the implications of this story. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Just press pause there for a minute. As we um, kind of begin to look at this story, uh, this story opens um, with Jesus avoiding confrontation with the religious leaders. He's avoiding confrontation with them as they're beginning to get upset that the Jesus' fame was surpassing that of even John the Baptist, okay? Now, it's not that that Jesus always avoided confrontation with these religious leaders. Okay, The argument could actually easily, biblically, be made that Jesus was crucified because he didn't avoid conflict enough and that he actually continued to jump into conflict with those religious leaders. He, at times, would call them whitewashed tombs. That's a that's a heavy statement. Brood of snakes, vipers, he would call them. Um, these these leaders, these religious folks, these church going Christians, might I say, um, that they, they couldn't reconcile uh, their religious uh, legalistic beliefs with. Jesus' radical message, not only his radical message, but his radical ministry. I mean, they actually accused Jesus of being a drunk and a glutton because of who he hung out with. His friends were sinners, tax collectors. Um, And so because of the way that he did ministry, because of the message he preached, he took a lot of heat from the religious crowd to the tune that he was crucified For his message and ministry so here's the thing though Uh, Jesus while he did avoid uh, the religious leaders at times um, he didn't allow his opponents to hinder his ministry or his message in any way Uh, the fact that he chooses uh, to make a pit stop in Samaria in this passage Uh, That's proof enough, okay? Uh, Samaria was full of a group of people called Samaritans. They're basically half Jewish and half Assyrian. Uh, They they were deeply hated by the Jews, okay? The story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 kind of underscores that truth. When 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 Jesus is talking about what it means to actually love your neighbor, look at that. Sometime it helps to underscore some of what I'm saying here. I mean, the Jews deeply despised the Samaritans to the point to the point that they would avoid a traveling through Samaria because Samaria was considered to be an unclean, nearly might I say, sinful place to be. Okay, uh, at best. If a Jewish person was traveling through Samaria, they they would literally uh, take off their flip-flops and shake off the filthy dust of that unclean place. They would shake that off their feet as they came through to the other side. A a, a Jewish person, a religious person, a moral person um, who was a Jew um, would actually avoid Samaria if they could they would go around Samaria rather than traveling through. It was such a place to be avoided. Now, now to get um, the sense of of how uncomfortable this really was for a Jewish person, for us to actually put ourselves in their shoes and kind of know what they feel, if they were in Samaria, uh, just think about the place that makes you the most uncomfortable. I don't know what that is for you. Um... For some of our women, maybe. Uh, It might be the strip club on the other side of town. Might be. Um, For some of our guys, um, it might be the local pub. Now, Now, I don't want to diminish the fact there may be some very good reasons in terms of just protecting ourselves. But I think you have to get at what really makes you uncomfortable with a place. Places that we deem to be sinful the places that we deem to be dirty, the places that we deem to be just simply outright inappropriate for a Christian or a person who has good morals to be hanged out at. This, this is where Jesus decides to take a load off his feet. Now you could say that Jesus basically takes a break at the local pub among the riffraff. Uh, Don't believe me. Take a look. Verses 17 or 7 through 15. We continue. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, catch that? Surprises her, right? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Look at the parenthetical statement. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Question mark for all of us. Who is it that we would have no dealings with? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, hey, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come back here to draw water. Speaking of taking a break at the local pub among the riffraff. Um, it's important for us to notice what time it is in this text. It's a very important piece of the text. What time is it when Jesus encounters this woman? So you might look back at verse six. Um, verse six tells us it's about the middle of the day. At six o'clock it says uh, would have been around noon um, where they were at, the way that they counted hours in that time. So around midday That's the time when this woman comes to the well. Now, I want you to think about this, okay? In that culture, the common practice to draw water from the well was to do so early in the morning. Why? Why would you go draw water from the well early in the morning? Well, simply so that your household would have fresh water throughout the day. So you got to ask the question, why didn't this woman come to the well in the morning? when all the other women from town were going. Was she just being antisocial? Was she just simply being an introvert? <laughs> now, the funny thing is, there's actually people who would preach this text and say just that. And it's not really true. Notice this too. Notice how surprised the woman is that Jesus, a Jewish man, two deans right? First, he's Jewish. Secondly, he's a man. A Jewish man would even speak to her. She's surprised about that. I can imagine how caught off guard she was. I I can imagine that in her bewilderment, she may have even wondered what this man wanted from her. Now, we pick up some of that later in the text here, and we're going to get there, but I I just have a sense that that might have been rolling through her head. What does this man want from me? I think this woman was used to being used by men who had these deep thirst and these unchecked appetites. Jesus, of course, uh, immediately uses this conversation about physical thirst to begin speaking to this woman about spiritual thirst. He, he takes all this the physical things that are happening, those desires, and just immediately begins pointing towards the things underneath. The thing underneath the thing underneath the thing, right? Like we just have a tendency to kind of live in this temporal physical world but Jesus loves to get what's underneath that deep inside the recesses of our hearts so he does that of course the woman slightly confused so what does she do she begins to rely on her knowledge we do that a lot everything I know Is where I'm going to shift to. And I want to deal with the things inside my heart. So I'm going to deal with the things that I know in my mind. So she starts talking about the origins of the well, the man who built it. How could this man in front of her even speak about the ability to quench her thirst eternally? What does that even mean, right? She's intrigued, though. So she asked Jesus to get her some of that living water so that she doesn't have to come to this well alone at midday anymore. So, so, so what do you think is motivating her? I think what's motivating her is a sense of self-preservation. So, I think it is. It would be much easier for her just to be able to sit at home and have this living water that would never run out. She wouldn't have to ever leave her house now and actually go down to the well and risk all the shame, all the guilt, all the fear of the other women in town. So look at Jesus' response because his response is really interesting. Verses 16 to 26. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband. Come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. Now, I, I don't get the sense that when Jesus is saying this, he's speaking shame. He's just speaking truth. Hey, you've had five husbands. And the one you now have, the one that you're living with, is not your husband. Well, what you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, I probably would respond the same way, right? Like, don't know this dude from Adam, which is kind of a funny term. But at any rate, don't know this guy at all. Suddenly he knows everything about me. I would probably wonder if this guy was a prophet too. So what's her next inclination? Let's not deal with the heart issue. Let's talk about religion now. So verse 20, she says, ah, you're a prophet, right? So let's talk about worship. Let's talk about religion. Our fathers... She says, worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Points back to what she thinks she knows. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah, he who is called Christ, when he comes, he'll tell us all things. That's an interesting thing. He'll tell us all things. What's Jesus doing? He's telling her all things. So in verse 26, he says, I who speak to you am he. So, so in this chunk of, text, we, we learn that this woman at the well, she has what, what I refer to as a worship disorder. Now, lest you start thinking, man, that blasted woman at the well, she's got a worship disorder. All of us have worship disorders. At the foundation, we worship ourselves at the base. We, we, we want what we want. And typically what we want is immediate, momentary gratification, satisfaction, selfishness. It's self-serving typically. That's that's what our worship, our worship disorders in our hearts look like. And we cover it up, cover it up with all sorts of statements. When we talk about sin in generalities, we don't talk about it personally. Um, We uh, talk about others and their sin specifically, right? We rant and rave about those darn people that are doing X, Y, Z, whatever our pet peeve, sin is. We post stuff on Facebook. We talk about it when we're together with our friends. talk about their specific sins, but our specific sin? Nah, it's gloss over. I sinned a little bit this week. That's kind of the way we oftentimes roll. Why? Because we don't want to deal with the real worship disorders deep down inside of us. We're just like the woman at the well. We have worship disorders. She's coming to the well, right? At midday, to avoid the other women in town why because she's known to be a promiscuous woman five husbands six men she's with now in her home the sense is that the community is small she's basically been sleeping with a lot of the men in town she's known to be a promiscuous woman known to be basically like a prostitute she said five husbands right living with a man she's not married to can you imagine the shame in that culture it wasn't quite the same as our culture in this way um, the shame that she's living under, the, the guilt that she feels, uh, the fear that she lives with. Well, don't forget too, that this, this woman's entire sense of uh, identity in that culture is wrapped up in whether or not she's actually married. A woman's livelihood is often uh, inexplicably tied to the man that she was married to in that culture. Um, in other words, an unmarried woman, um, much less a promiscuous woman, um, it's basically they would be treated like a little lower than the scum of the earth, the scum of society. Top top all that off with the fact that she's now engaged in a conversation with a lone religious Jewish man. Once she realized that Jesus is some kind of prophet, what does she do? She, she shifts the conversation into okay. that age-old debate about where God's people should worship. Catch that. Like, don't miss this part. If you're tuning out on me, tune back in now. She shifts the conversation back to where should people worship? Like, should we worship on that mountain or that mountain? Can I worship in my home? Can I worship in the backyard, the local pub? Where can I or can I not worship? Is going to Walmart an act of worship or is it not? Like, is there an actual divide between the secular and the sacred? Kind of the question. As if if location actually has the power to transform the human heart. You and I buy into this, don't we? I think it's one of the things that might be getting ripped out of our souls and our hearts in this moment is that location has nothing to do with the transformation of the heart. But location is still important. I think that's why God saw fit to put these details of this location into this story. The reality is that the only cure for a worship disorder is the ability to worship God in spirit and in truth. And the only person who has the power to transform the human heart from self-worship to God-worship is the Messiah. And Jesus tells this woman that he is that man. Jesus is the man who looks past the shame. He's the man who looks past the guilt. He's the man who looks past the fear. He's the man who looks past the sin. And he sees the person who needs to be transformed. The reality in this text is that this woman at the well, she's encountering the one man out of all the men that she's encountered. She's encountering the one man who can transform her life for all of eternity. The question is, is how is this woman going to respond? How is she going to respond? Going to believe or not believe? Look at verses 27 to 29. John tells us that just then Jesus' disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Interesting. But no one said, What do you seek? Equally as interesting. Or why are you talking with her? Again, equally as interesting. So the woman left her jar, her water jar, went away in the town, said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. That's that's fascinating. All that I ever did. All we had is a brief part of the conversation, but for her. She got the sense that Jesus knew everything about her. Can this be the Christ, she asks. In verse 30, we see that they, meaning the townspeople, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, I can just imagine what it must have been like to be the disciples, come walking around that corner, all right, and find Jesus sitting next to the well alone. Mm, Alone. Deep in conversation with a known prostitute. Just let that sink in. Questions. that must have been rolling around in his disciples' minds. We see them. John put them there. Those are the questions they were thinking. They didn't verbalize them, <laughs> to their credit. They didn't verbalize them. The woman's response. So that's the disciples' response. The woman's response. Fascinating. She leaves in such a hurry. She's so... Excited that she doesn't even grab a water jar, just leaves it sitting there. heads straight back to town. Starts telling everyone about the man that she has met at the well, who must be the Messiah. So, put yourself in the townspeople's shoes now. Okay, think about these characters in the story. And can you imagine what it must have like to be then? What it must have been been like? Um, the promiscuous woman, the prostitute, the woman who's sleeping around a whole bunch. She found herself another man. That, that's really what's happening. She found herself another man. And and she thinks this one's the Messiah? Ah, maybe a little skeptical. Probably be where I would be. I don't know where you would be. Um, so it would be something worth checking out, though. At least that's what we see in the text, the way John writes it. So look at verses 31 through 38 real quick. As she's going back to town, meanwhile, verse 31 The disciples are urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I I have food to eat that you do not know about. That's an interesting statement. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. This is, I think this picture, lift up your eyes. Get your eyes off the earthly things in front of you, the things that you know nothing about, the, all the questions you've got, the crazy religious debates you have. Get your eyes up out of that and look. Because right out in front of you, the fields are white for the harvest people waiting people with questions people that need the lord oftentimes this is an indictment for us as christians i think when we put ourselves back in disciples shoes we, we, we just get caught up in these stupid debates that really, they really have nothing to do with people actually meeting jesus let's ask you if, if you're a christian you're watching this guys ask you well, when was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody and I just ask you when the last time was that you led somebody to Jesus, that because of your testimony, because of your story, someone began following the Lord because of the work of the Lord in you. Or is it that you're maybe so consumed with the uh, different things of this world um, that you have sidetracked yourself. Jesus in this passage saying, hey, lift up your eyes. Look look at the fields. They're white for the harvest. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. So much more joy in being a part of the mission of God than it is all the other crazy religious things that we could possibly be involved in. I'm just convinced that we as Christians, we just like to get ourselves busy, okay? We're busy bodies. we do this group. We do that group. We, we run a million miles an hour and 50,000 different directions at the same time. And we just totally miss the fact that, you know what, there, there's something, there's something about um, just being in a place with Jesus doing work inside of me, um, where in that natural space, others can see and hear Jesus at work in me. I don't need 50,000 programs for that. Just need an intense focus on Jesus as we lift our eyes up out of all the craziness around us and focus on those whom Jesus loves so much that he would give his life for them. Final verse in 38, he says, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. See, the disciples here, that they can see that Jesus hasn't eaten anything yet, right? I mean, I think they're kind of legitimately concerned for him. Hasn't eaten anything. Maybe his lack of food is causing him to have this momentary lapse in judgment. Dude needs to eat something. Maybe that's why he's engaging with this crazy, sinful woman at the well. Like, maybe he wouldn't have had that lapse of judgment if he would just eaten something. So they urge him to get something to eat. begin wondering, maybe maybe somebody else fed him. Maybe he ate something wrong, right? Maybe that's why he's talking to this woman. But Jesus explains that his satisfaction, interesting, his satisfaction, basically, in the sense of what he says here. His satisfaction. Think of that word. is similar to the satisfaction that we feel when we get to eat a good meal, OK? Talking about food, talking about water, talking about appetites. His satisfaction, the thing that actually satisfies him, it's tied to the mission at hand, seeking to save those who are lost. The fields are white for the harvest, the reaping of a spiritual harvest of transformed worshipers. That's exactly the kind of food and the kind of work that his father, our father, sent Jesus to accomplish. And furthermore, Jesus' disciples, they're, they're now called into the same soul and soul satisfying labor of seeking to save those who are lost once again john brings us right back to the purpose of why he wrote this gospel why did he write it he wrote it according to chapter 20 verse 31 that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god that by believing you may have life in his name look at the final verses with me here verses 39 through 42 many samaritans i love this portion of the text This is the key portion of the text for me and for our church over the years. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they said to him, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know this is indeed the Savior of the world, long been My favorite part of this story. Jesus purposely positions himself, listen, purposely positions himself in a place where no self-conscious religious man or woman would purposely position themselves. He intentionally engages a conversation with a woman that has no religious connection, basically. No, No religious, no real religious Jewish person would talk to this woman. That alone, seeing Jesus do this, is really freeing for me. It lets me know I can walk right in Jesus' footsteps, regardless of what legalists and moralists around me say. It's also real cool, um, I think, that the woman uh, responds by telling everybody in town to come meet Jesus. Like When people first start following Jesus, they get so excited. All they want to do is talk about following Jesus, don't really care about all the stupid debates that we have. All the stupid cultural things we can get involved in. They really don't care about that. They just care about, man, I I met Jesus. And he saw me for who I really am. And he loved me completely. Even though he knows me completely, he loved me completely. And people just, when they start following Jesus, they get so excited. I love being around people who just begin to start following Jesus for that reason. The really exciting part, though, um, outside of that, um, is to learn that after Jesus hangs out there for a couple days, Townspeople ask him to hang out for a little bit. Um, Townspeople actually come to him, right? And they come to Jesus and, and they, they explain to him. They're like, hey, hey, um, uh, we believe in you, not just because of that woman's testimony uh, anymore, not just because of that woman's story. Um, we, we believe in you now. Why? Why? Because they heard Jesus' voice themselves. And that's the question. If you call yourself a Christian, it's, I just want to ask you, what is Jesus speaking to you this week? Have you heard Jesus' voice specifically to you, speaking to you personally about your personal, very real sin, and at the same time, his deep love for you? I've asked our church for years to get on board with talking about their real sin and Jesus' real love for them. I love seeing that happen in our church family because it's evidence that you're actually hearing from Jesus and that he's speaking to you? Have you heard from Jesus this week? It's the single question that we ask every week in our gospel communities. It has been, I mean, this season. Part of that's just a repentance part on me, just knowing that I can't necessarily speak like Jesus to you. Uh, I can in a way, um, but there's nothing like hearing Jesus' voice for yourself. And so, uh, have you had an encounter with Jesus? Has he met you somewhere in your life this week and have, have you have you heard from him? have you written it down have you slowed down long enough to listen to him so you know I, i'm married and if i just like constantly ran through my house and uh was just like hey babe how you doing and just run right on through and and you know never stopped and and listened to what my wife had to say to me i don't think anybody would be um, impressed with that nor do i think anybody would actually want to say hey joe actually listens to his wife What's this like between you and Jesus? Have you encountered Him this week? Because the townspeople, the townspeople here, they're they're kind of done leeching off the woman's story. We often do that. We, We leech off of other people. We leech off of our pastors. We leech off of our friends and our family. We want their experience to be our experience rather than our experience being an authentic experience. Let's say that again. We want their experience to be our experience rather than having an authentic experience with Jesus. And a lot of times when I do this, I do just become trying to cover up sin. I'm shamed. Uh, I feel guilty. I'm afraid that if you knew the real me, you won't love me. And so I just try to leech off of someone else's experience, someone else's words, instead of having an actual experience with Jesus where he speaks to me about my sin specifically and his love for me. Uh, the, the other thing that I do when I start to leech off of other people's experiences is I start talking about things that really don't matter, Right. Like certain areas of doctrine that really just don't matter. Um, certain areas of our culture, politics, those kinds of things that really at the end of the day, and as far as eternal significance and my relationship with Jesus, that don't hold water. So have you encountered Jesus this week? Have you heard him speak to you personally? To these people in this story, they each had a personal encounter with Jesus, Therefore, they became transformed worshipers of God. What what Jesus does here, and I think you might see this quote on the screen behind me, um, Jesus took a risk uh, in a shady location with a shady woman uh, so that an entire town could become transformed worshipers of the Father in heaven. That's what Jesus did here. That's his ministry. That's his message. That's the ministry and the message that uh, we dreamed Our church family would be like as we planted from a group of six in this living room to now scattered. (laughs) The truth here is that Jesus plus a shady location plus a shady woman equals a transformed city. Say it again. Jesus plus a shady location plus a shady woman equals a transformed city. So in conclusion, I'm going to wrap this up. There are probably multiple ways. that you and I could apply this story to our lives. Uh, the bottom line here though, is that we all need an encounter with Jesus. Uh, we need an encounter with a fresh drink of living water. Jesus is that. He offers us that in His presence. okay we, we, Every one of us is simultaneously the woman with a worship disorder, the disciples with a responsibility. And the townspeople who may be a little bit skeptical but need to also have a fresh encounter for ourselves rather than leeching off of other people. We're all simultaneously in those three places. None of us are Jesus. Only Jesus is Jesus. So every one of us can find a place of application from all three groups of people in the text. Whether it be the woman, the townspeople, or the disciples. Our worship disorders, they show up every day in different ways, right? Our laziness. Our selfishness, our greed, our anger, our gossip, our pride, our lust, our dishonesty, our slander, our hypocrisy. The good news in this story is that Jesus not only came to offer himself as our substitutionary sacrifice for sin, but he also was raised on the third day in this magnificent display of power and glory over Satan, sin, and death. And then what did he do? He, he ascended to heaven leaving us with this promised return to take us to heaven with him forever. And and until then, we have this awesome responsibility as believers to be Jesus, to be a fresh drink of living water to the communities that we live in, to the ends of the earth. So when we began planting the well nearly eight years ago, we had this deep conviction, deep conviction that there were many in our community who had not yet had the opportunity to drink deeply from the well of Jesus' presence. We believe that there were many in our community who would not grace the doors of many of the churches in town. Not that many of those churches in town are bad. It's just that there needed to be a presence, a different kind of presence. Linking arms with other churches in our community, but a different kind of presence. And we wanted our presence to be a fresh drink of water whereby people would be transformed. All the way from the person who has yet to grace the doors of the gathered church, to the person who has been part of a church for years we believe that we want to be a fresh drink of water for all groups of people see at the end of the day every one of us needs a fresh drink of living water from jesus every one of us despite the places we come from we still need a transforming encounter with the risen christ whether you are a recovering legalist put that bubble above your head if that's you Whether you're a recovering legalist, you're somebody who loves everything to be neat and clean and tidy. Your spiritual experiences should be devoid of anything that looks messy. Or maybe you're a recovering rebel, right? You're someone who's been in some of the darkest places of society. Regardless of which person you are, the good news is that Jesus is not afraid to meet you where you're at so that he can transform you into the person that you were designed to be question for you is which person are you? These are my final application questions for us. i got a bunch of them. Just listen. Write them down. Go to Jesus with them later if one of these jumps out at you. Which person are you? Are you the legalist? Recovering legalist? Or are you the recovering rebel? Are you maybe somewhere in between where you're both? Maybe you need your world turned upside down by the radical mission of Jesus. What part of your life uh, is Jesus wanting to encounter you in today? What, what, what are the deep recesses of your heart that you just haven't spent time with him on? Again, your laziness, your sense of overworking, uh, your pride, your hypocrisy, uh, your tendency to get all consumed with all this stuff out here, rather than just doing silent time with Jesus, letting him speak to you. What is it? What is it in your life where Jesus wants to encounter you? Where, where do you feel a deep sense of shame? or a deep sense of guilt or a deep sense of fear? Where have you experienced this immense amount of pride or arrogance or self-righteousness? Where, where, where have you been resistant to the Lord's leading of your life this week? Who, who, who is it in your life, think about this, who is it in your life that you're dealing with that you actually think is beyond the reach of God, the person you're most frustrated with right now? Well, what places of relational frustration or, or cultural tension have you been avoiding lately? The last thing I want to say is that my prayer for us um, is that we would authentically invite the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. Why? So that we can be transformed worshipers. Transformed worshipers who come to the Father in spirit and in truth. My prayer simply is that we would all encounter Jesus at the well of our heart's desires and that we would invite others to drink deeply of the same living water that we've found. That's my prayer for us, is that we would encounter Jesus at the well. Amen? Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.